0: Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, AKA Triumvir Clio. Welcome back. I'm finally getting caught up on the overdue items on my to-do list. For the sake of my sanity, I've tried to keep about a month ahead in writing and recording podcast episodes, but the pandemic and my new freelance business have kept me busy. <laughs> this week, I've managed to squeeze in several. So I think I'll be able to keep going on our regular schedule of Monday, Wednesday, and every other Friday, at least for a bit longer. And I'm glad that you're still here. And I hope you're telling your friends. Um, let's get more people listening to Trimvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. Today, we have another Odyssey episode. We are up to book four, and we are still in the Telemachy. So we've heard about Odysseus, but we have yet to meet him. Telemachus is still on his coming-of-age quest for information about whether or not his father is still alive. When we last saw him, Telemachus had met Nestor and, along with Pisastratos, was on his way to Sparta. Book four begins with the two princes driving up to Menelaus's palace at Sparta, where they find the red-haired king in the midst of a double wedding. One wedding is between his daughter, Hermione, and the son of Achilles. Um, We saw how well that marriage works out in the last episode when we covered Euripides' Andromache. The other wedding is between Elector's daughter and uh, Menelaus' son, Megapenthes, a name which means great pain. Um, he's only Hermione's half-brother. His mother is one of Menelaus's slaves. And what with the whole running off with Paris deal, um, Helen was cursed to have no more children. So she only has one one child, and that's Hermione. Um, Aetianus sees Telemachus and Pisistratus driving up, and he calls out to Menelaus to ask if he should invite them in or send them on to a house that's not in the middle of a double wedding. Menelaus asks why this is even a question. On his return from Troy, he relied on the kindness of strangers, so of course they will receive the young men. Atenas rushes out, calling for servants to help look after the new guests. They enjoy a nice bath and put on some new-to-them clothes and then join the feast. Menelaus greets them warmly, commenting that they are clearly nobly born, before giving them his own portion of the feast. Telemachus whispers to Pisistratus that this must be what Zeus's court on Olympus looks like. And Menelaus overhears the comment and says that his court may be grand, but no mortal can vie with this Zeus. Besides, he is sure that there are other mortal kings who have more than he does. After all, he wandered for seven years through Kypros, Phoenicia, Egypt, Ethiopia, Sidon, Arabia, and Libya before he was able to bring his treasure home. And sure, he may have amassed a fortune, but during his time from home, someone murdered his brother. So what good are all of these things? What happiness can they bring? Menelaus would happily give up two-thirds of his treasure if it would bring his friends back. The one he misses the most? Odysseus. And his loss is the hardest because he doesn't even know if Odysseus is still alive or if he's dead. He's dead. His family must miss him, his father, and Penelope, and Telemachus, who, oh, he was just a baby when his father left. Telemachus cries at the talk of his father, and Menelaus sees and knows that this young man is that baby, all grown up. He stops talking, unsure of whether he should keep talking about Odysseus or not. As Menelaus thinks, and Telemachus weeps, Helen comes out of her room, like Artemis, and, accompanied by her servants, Adrastea, Achepe, Um, and Philo. She sits, puts up her feet, and starts to spin before she addresses her husband, asking who their company is. She doesn't wait for an answer. After all, he is clearly the son of Odysseus, Telemachus, who was left behind when the Achaeans made war on Troy because of her own wanton behavior. Menelaus nods. He's noticed the likeness, too. And he's noticed how the young man cries to hear Odysseus spoken of. Pisistratus speaks up. Yes, his companion is Telemachus. He's too gentle to say so himself. They have come from Nestor. Menelaus is thrilled to hear that Odysseus' son is in his house. Odysseus was always his favorite. It could have been so awesome. I, this honestly reminds me of the way my best friend and I used to talk. <laughs> Betsy, if you're listening, I, this sounds like our, our childhood dream of having houses next to each other. Um, Odysseus and his family could have moved from Ithaca to Argos. Um, Menelaus would have given him a whole city as his house. Uh, sure, some people would have had to move, but whatever, you know, that whole city and they would have been like next door neighbors and they could have played together. Sure, Odysseus might not have been an independent king, but that'd be okay because that would be so cool to live next door to be your, your best friend, right? Um, not that any of the streaming matters since Odysseus has yet to return from Troy anyway. This speech is as cheery as you would expect and leaves everyone in tears. Pisastratus is the first to suggest that they not spend the entire night crying. He tells Menelaus that his father, Nestor, said the red-haired king had the clearest mind, and that is why they have come to him. Menelaus nods and agrees to tell and tells Pisastratus that he's, he's like his father. and the same sort of thing, like, oh, Telemachus, you're so like Odysseus. You know, oh, Pisistratus, you're just like Nestor. Um. They all go back to eating, and Helen drugs the wine so that everyone forgets their sorrow. Helen then starts speaking of Troy. She tells of how Odysseus disguised himself as a beggar and slipped into the city, but she recognized him and brought him home and cleaned him up. Um, She swore to keep a secret, and in exchange, he told her of the Greek plans to capture the city. She was homesick for Greece by this point in the war and regretted having left her child, marriage, and husband. I mean, there wasn't anything wrong with Menelaus, but she still chose to go with Paris. Menelaus nods and approves this message. And then he speaks of the Trojan horse. Yes, you might have been expecting that story to appear in the Iliad, but we don't hear it until the Odyssey. You probably know the basics, Greek soldiers hiding in a wooden horse that has apparently been left as a parting gift for the Trojans. Menelaus tells a bit more. As those soldiers were waiting until nightfall, Helen walked around the horse, mimicking the voices of the soldiers' wives, trying to get them to reveal themselves. But clever Odysseus told the men that it was just Helen um, and saved them from leaving the horse before it was time. Telemachus thanks Menelaus for this story and then suggests that it might be time for bed. Helen calls for maids to make beds for their guests, and everyone goes to bed. The poet makes a point to tell us that Menelaus and Helen sleep in the same bed, so they're back together. Um, in the morning, Menelaus sits next to Telemachus and speaks gently to him, asking why he has come to Sparta. Telemachus talks about the suitors and trouble on Ithaca before saying that he seeks news of his father. Menelaus has no answer. He expresses his anger at how the house of Odysseus is being treated and sympathy for Telemachus. Then he tells his own story. He got stuck at Pharos at the mouth of the Nile. Today you might know it as Alexandria and Pharos as the lighthouse that was built there, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, but I digress. The, cla- the gods to the sea for 20 days because he hadn't sacrificed enough. Menelaus and his crew were running out of food and if um, Adathea, the daughter of Proteus, an ancient sea god, hadn't taken pity on them, they surely would have starved. Menelaus was out walking on the shore and met her, and she told him that her father, who works for Poseidon, could help, but it would take a bit of a trick. Not to worry, though, she knows what to do. She tells Menelaus to select three of his crewmen. She would help disguise them as seals, and in that guise, the men would be able to to sneak up on Proteus and ambush him. But Proteus is a shapeshifter, so the men are warned not to let go, no matter what shape the god might take, until he speaks. Edithea describes the plan, and then Menelaus describes how it went, because orality. Um, so we get the description, we get it, it's that's the same thing, right? Proteus told Menelaus about his sacrifice faux pas, and while he was at it, told him that Big Ajax was killed by Poseidon, and Agamemnon was killed by Agisthos. And if you're thinking, wait, Big Ajax dies by suicide, well, just wait until we get to book 11, we'll get another take on his death there. Menelaus did as Proteus told him, and the gods let them leave Egypt, and that is how Menelaus got home. It's a really helpful answer to the question Telemachus asked, isn't it? (laughs) Actually, I did skip a part. Proteus does give Menelaus news of Odysseus. He's trapped on the island of Calypso with no way to get home. As for Menelaus, Proteus tells him that he's destined for Elysian uh, because he's married to Helen. Um, Do you remember who Helen's father is? Zeus her mother is Leto the Swan well okay it's not Leto and the Swan is the story Zeus comes in the form of a swan it's the Greek gods are messed up we'll just leave it there Helen's father is Zeus and since she's the daughter of the king of the gods it's not like she's gonna hang out with the common shades in Hades so she's going to the Elysian Fields and her semi divinity is extended to her husband so Menelaus gets to have the good afterlife Um, automatically by having married Helen. (laughs) Telemachus thanks Menelaus for his stories and for being a good host, but he says that it is time for him to return to Pelos, where his crew awaits him. And since horses are no good on Ithaca, he asks for just a small guest gift. This amuses Menelaus. He agrees to change his gift to a silver wine bowl made by none other than Hephaestus himself. It is one of the many gifts Menelaus uh, uh, amassed on his journey back from Troy. Meanwhile, back at Ithaca, the suitors are competing at Discus and Javelin, and Noemon comes to see them. He asks when Telemachus is coming home. He kind of borrowed Neumann's ship for the journey, and he kind of needs it so he can get back to work. This is a surprise to the suitors, who had no clue that Telemachus had left. Uh, Neumann tells him that, oh, sure, he was happy to loan his ship, and of course 20 young men were happy to sign on his crew. I mean, who doesn't like Telemachus? Oh, yeah, he left with Mentor five days ago. Um, but What's weird um, is that Neumann is sure he just saw a Mentor yesterday, but, but Telemachus hasn't returned to his ship yet. He shrugs and goes home since clearly the suitors can't answer his question. The suitors are livid. How dare Telemachus do what he told them he was going to do? There's only one thing they can do now, and that's kill Telemachus. Medon overhears their plot and tells Penelope. Uh so Eurycleia ha- has done as requested. Um you remember, Telemachus told her not to tell Mom for at least ten, twelve days, somewhere around there. Um, and she she's kept the secret, but Penelope finds out from Medon instead. Penelope breaks down and wails, and her serving women murmur lamentations. After a good cry, she sends the orchard keeper to tell Laertes what's going on. Uh, Eurycleia confesses that she's known all along and apologizes and then is the good nursemaid that she is and takes care for Penelope like a mother would. Penelope prays to Athena to protect Telemachus. Downstairs, the suitors are getting a bit too rowdy and are boasting about how Penelope is on the verge of picking one of them. She overhears this comment. Antinous tells them to quiet down. The suitors pick their own crew of 20 and launch a ship so that they can ambush Telemachus on his return. But back to Penelope. She is, simply put, she's grieving. She isn't hungry. She can't sleep. Her mind is racing. But eventually her body takes over and she does fall asleep. And Athena sends her a dream. In her dream, Penelope's sister visits her and tells her that Telemachus is safe. Athena protects him. Penelope asks about Odysseus, but her dream sister tells her she's not allowed to answer any questions about him. The dream helps, and Penelope is finally able to get some rest. And the suitors wait on their ship to ambush Telemachus. And that is where Book 4 and the Telemachy ends. I know, right? You're going to have to wait until nearly the end of the epic to find out what happens when Telemachus returns to Ithaca. Menelaus has a pretty exciting tale to tell, doesn't he? There used to be a whole group of epics called the Trojan Cycle, but only two of them survive. Um, so we know the basic stories of several several of these tales. You know, there's a lot of oral history, and you know, it, it, these were stories that were told. But the actual epics, like the Iliad and the Odyssey, those are the only two of this Trojan Cycle that survive. Um, so we no longer have their equivalents of, of these tales. Uh, and most of what we have about Menelaus's story is what we, what, what we have here in, in book four. But there used to be a whole epic about it, right? Ah, uh, Well, uh, maybe someday someone will discover <laughs> all of the Dead Sea Scrolls, a uh, uh, cache of, of what's missing. Menelaus and Helen are great hosts. But there's just something off about life at Sparta. Menelaus has two children, but Helen only has one. And she's cursed because she ran off with Paris. It's clearly stated that Megapenthes' mother is a slave and that he was born while Menelaus was at Troy. Um, What's unclear from that statement is whether his mother is a slave Menelaus brought with him from Greece or if she's a slave who was captured during the war. It is, however, an example of the differences between slavery as we see it in American history and slavery in ancient Greece. The status of the mother did not determine the status of the child in ancient Greece. So Megapenthes is the child of a slave, the son of a slave, but he's being honored, um, equivalent to the way Hermione, the daughter of the king and queen, is being honored. Um, I am not trying to say that slavery in ancient Greece was good. We see, obviously, in cases like this, it still had the horrible, lots of horrible things. But it's looking at that racial aspect and um, the, the status It was different um, as far as, as, far as what, whether you could rise out of the state without being deemed a fugitive, even though you were a refugee. Um, I digress. <laughs> Helen presents a, a, an interesting picture in this book. Um, when she first appears, she's likened to Artemis, a virgin goddess, um, which makes you wonder what's going on in her marriage now that she and Menelaus are back together. We see them sleeping in the same bed. But Artemis doesn't sleep with anybody. Uh, So she puts on the show of being a good wife. Helen presents herself as a good wife. I mean, she sits down and she starts spinning. That's what good wives do, isn't it? But let's take a look at what she's using. Her basket is silver, and her distaff is gold, which sounds hella heavy for a distaff. Um, I, I doesn't say anything about what her spindle is made out of, so <laughs> I'm hoping that it's made out of something much more practical, because um, everything else is far too fancy for its purpose. Um, now, we've seen that all of Sparta is opulent. It is, um, it is like total nouveau riche. Um, the unsinkable Molly Brown's house, right? It, it So her tools, you know, Helen's tools are in keeping with everything else that we hear about Sparta, but it's still, it still is impractically showy. Um, so it's not necessarily that she is a good wife as that she's acting the good wife. And, and this showiness, this it continues when she drugs the wine. I mean, everyone's happy, but it's unnatural. It would be perfectly reasonable for everyone assembled to weep for the men who died at Troy. That's the emotion you would expect. But Helen provides a drug that makes everyone happy again. Cause you want to be happy at a wedding, right? Um so clearly something is just not not quite right at Sparta. Helen and Menelaus are back together in Sparta but it, but are they really right um, and things are odd on Menelaus's end too he speaks of honor and glory and of how he got all of his treasure but at what cost and his philosophy he'd give it all up in exchange for peace he would rather have that abstract good of peace than all of the concrete wealth he has amassed So, is he saying that he wishes he'd never gone after Helen? After all, he amassed his treasure after the war was won. For all the talk of honor and glory in the Iliad, Menelaus would have foregone that if he'd known it would keep his friends alive. He may put on a cheery show, but there are dark undertones in his speech. I'd initially wanted to talk about the end of this book because Penelope is such a beautiful depiction of the complexity that is grief and grieving um, but this episode the, it is kind of long um, the summary took longer than I expected um, so that's all I'm going to say about that here and we can discuss it over on the blog because um, the grief runs throughout this epic and it but it happens in least little tiny tidbits and snatches here and there um, so yeah there's a prompt about grief Oh, um, over on the blog, and of course more than that. And the link, as always, is in the show notes. On Monday, we will read Plautus's *Pseudolus*, another name that may be familiar to you from *A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum*. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.